if the group would review the minutes, our only real logistic business from last time. Didn't see anything. Once you get a chance to do that, if there's a motion to approve. So moved. Second. Any discussion? All in favor of approving the minutes, say aye. Aye. Opposed? Just Ms. note that that was a historic meeting. We lost a chair. Mm. We lost the director of the unit. We selected two new people. I mean, it was... We lost Verenia time. We lost mm -hmm. a... Another staff person too. Yeah. Oh yes, Marina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the most business ever conducted at one of these. <laughs> well, and I don't say that as a group observing the functionality <laughs> of our committee. We're always very busy, <laughs> very high stakes decisions yeah. made frequently. Well, I just want to add that. Um, Use the mic. Oh. oh, you have a mic too. I understand that. I'm in these meetings regularly. Okay. But I was looking at my calendar. Um, I just want to um, add, and I don't know if this is an appropriate time, but since we're talking about people leaving this committee, you know how much I've appreciated Scott's leadership. Thank you. Um, I concur. Well, three years ago, early on, um, he, uh, he spent time with me, bringing me up to speed at Sequoia Library. Um, three years ago. The, Three years ago, I know. And, I mean, just really a lot of time and caring. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, good luck in Ireland. Uh, yeah, you'll have to tell me now. I'll be curious. I, I don't know what I don't know. So you and Connie will have to – maybe we'll have to have another meeting at Sequoia Library, and you can tell me everything I need to know about McFarland. McFarland's library. Oh, that's right, a very nice library. They have a nice library in there. But there aren't a lot of other options. So, well, thank you. Um, did you write down the minutes were approved, or do we have to? Okay, close enough to approval. Any disclosures or recusals? Our our public comment will probably be most of our discussions today, but not seeing any other. With that, I'll ask Diane to introduce our speaker. Well, this is a real pleasure for me to introduce Beth Blue Swadener. I've known Beth uh, for over 40 years. I was in my office at Dudgeon School at 4C, and a young woman came in and dunked her papers down and said, I'm working for after-school daycare, and I have my office here. Oh, good. <laughs> so we, that was great. That was my first meeting with Beth, and I'm glad to introduce her to you. I won't tell you all the, the things that have happened in the intervening 40 years. Um, Beth is Professor of Justice Studies and Social and Cultural Pedagogy at Arizona, Arizona State University. And if you think you can get that all on one of those little cards, you're mistaken. It's very hard. <laughs> but she, her distinguishing reason for being here is she is a Madisonian in the sense that she did her master's and Ph.D. here in at UW Madison, and her research has focused on comparative uh, study of impacts of social and educational policy. She's authored, co-authored, uh, or co-edited co 11 books, over 100 articles. Um, her work cited mostly is around the area of anti-bias and uh, deficit discourse. And the basic anti-bias approaches to early childhood. 
If you've ever been in a classroom, I think most people have here, maybe our visitors haven't, been in an early childhood classroom and watched three-year-olds handle a problem. They know how to do it, and they do it without much bias because they don't have these years of reading extensive newspaper articles about how life goes. I remember once watching a, a three-year-old with his buddy in a classroom with his arm around him, and the teacher was saying, I wonder what they're talking about. And he came up, finally, the teacher, he said, you know, Ben's going through a divorce, and I did that. <laughs> so here he was counseling his friend, and they know how to do that. Well, Beth has lifted up for the academic world and rights advocates around the world issues that relate to how we get there as adults. So uh, Beth is co-founder of a group called RECI, which is the Reconceptualizing Early Childhood Education, an anti-bias group that meets internationally, and the local to global issue, uh, justice at, at Arizona, and the project that we work most closely on, the Jirani Project. And in Swahili, that means neighbor, Jirani. And she and I have been really good neighbors for many years. Her other name, uh, the, the Swahili word for fast or quick is haraka. So she's also known as Mama Haraka. She really goes fast. When she's in Kenya, she's really going around. So we're glad that she's here because the topic, when the topic came up for the city, for us to talk about the idea of the rights of the child, the UN uh, uh, project that talked about the rights of the child. What could we what could we learn from that? And I said, I know the right person and she'll be in Madison, so I invited Beth. So Beth Swader, you're on. Thanks for coming. Thank you. <laughs> and in uh dare I say in in Kenya what or what I dubbed you years ago, those of you on the committee might relate to this as Diana's Mama suggestion <laughs> <laughs> makes many good suggestions and has great ideas. We've just been friends and colleagues, as she said, a very long time. And um, when I heard that my adopted hometown, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, so we can see each other, uh, was going to be focusing through your child care committee on rights-based planning or exploring what that might look like, um, I was very excited. So. Um, I have been doing work the last, uh, really much of my career has focused on children's voices and perspectives, um, dating back to my dissertation done here in two child care centers in Madison, Wisconsin, full year ethnographies looking more at cultural diversity and interactions of children, uh, and also planned and unplanned diversity curriculum. So I came with very much an anti-bias uh, background, uh, but this work uh, is work I've done in several uh, international contexts with several colleagues, including Dr. Lacey Peters, uh, who is with us from New York City and Hunter College, um, and was actually part of uh, some of the research I'll be talking about. Don't be surprised, Lacey, if I toss you a slide or two to talk about. <laughs> um, I've also done this work with uh, Professor Lourdes Soto, uh, Professor Valerie Polico at Eastern Michigan. Uh, there are several of us, Dr. Laura Lundy at Queen's uh, University of, of uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. So just at the outset, when I use the we, I want to acknowledge who the we is. 
And these are some questions. Uh, hopefully you can see them. Uh, and there will be a handout, I believe, of the slides uh, available to you also. But basically, several of us have just asked the question, what does it mean to reframe planning and policy and even advocacy in terms of children's rights? How would it look different? Um, how would we set different goals? How would we ask different questions? How would we um, utilize different methodologies, etc.? And then I have been asking the question, this was the question I, well, in higher ed two sabbaticals ago, I would say, um, how can we learn from other nations and municipalities? And I was particularly excited that this is a municipal level initiative because at that very local level, there's just in many ways so much more you can do. Uh, and um, I have worked with colleagues who are working at the city uh, or community level, and I think we can learn a lot from them, uh, particularly in the emphasis on child participation and voice. And then, of course, how can we apply these insights for and with children? Um, and a slogan that uh, I also, when I was in Madison, I worked a lot around disability issues, uh, access issues, uh, and then it's kind of evolved into disability studies in a more academic way for me. But a slogan of earlier disability rights movements was nothing about us without us. And to me that applies fully to younger human beings as Gail Canella might name them or children, you know. Nothing about us with, without us. Um, don't worry, I'm not doing a, a travelogue today. <laughs> um, I, I will only focus on certain of these countries, but I just wanted to let you know some of the places. As Diane mentioned, I've done work in Kenya since 1992, where I first went with Diane uh, to a collaborative seminar uh, with colleagues there and that Diane co-organized. Um, I've, I've been doing work in Sub-Saharan Africa actually since the late 80s. So a lot of my work has been on that continent. And children's rights work uh, with a, uh, a Zulu colleague, Bexizu Andamande, who is an alum of Madison, with his doctorate, by the way, um, was in South Africa. But the work I'll focus on today is primarily from countries that would be more parallel uh, to the United States. Of course, we haven't yet signed on to the Convention for the Rights of the Child, standing rather alone uh, on that, uh, but uh, countries that have taken it up and taken it very seriously. So Australia, um, both Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, and then a couple of examples uh, from the U.S. Um, so I don't know. Uh, are, are most of you, how, have, has everybody heard of the UNCRC, including our guests? I know the committee has. Um, it, and I should acknowledge Dr. Mimi Block is with us, and most of you at the table know her. She's Professor Emerita in Early Childhood at Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome, Mimi. Um, so as it's known, the UNCRC uh, has been with us for a while. Um, it was adopted in 89 and um, entered fully into force in 1990. There's also one in Africa, uh, a separate charter for the rights of the child. Uh, in, in Africa uh, that addresses uh, some of the individual versus more collective uh, views of childhood. Um, but it is very consistent with um, its text is, it overlaps almost completely with the UNCRC. Um, you wouldn't know it in the United States, but it's one of the most universally ratified uh, documents of the United Nations. Um, it's legally binding, although it doesn't have a court like the International Criminal Court. 
um, that the United States is also not part of. <laughs> um, one could only imagine. But <laughs> uh, and it's a very comprehensive uh, treaty, and it covers education, social, economic, as well as civil and political rights. So I think that's very important, the civil rights of children, the political rights of children, just to underscore those two uh, words. And as I said a moment ago, the United States is the only nation which has not ratified it. Um, we've not signed off on it. Um, it's gone pretty far through Congress in an earlier time. Um, and people would say, well, aren't there two other countries? Until fairly recently, within the last eight or nine years, those two countries were Somalia and Iraq. Uh, and now it, we stand alone. Of course, something approved on paper is not something enacted. We all know that. We do a lot of work in, in, in Kenya. We see that rights of, of girls, especially, and other children, I won't get into all the ways that rights are violated in countries that have signed on to this. But it's a very important first step to ratify it. Would you be able to speak to, in, in your opinion, or what you've seen, why the United States have, has not signed on to this? Yeah, um, I teach a course on this, and what I usually suggest to students is they Google it. They look up sites that are opposed to it. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, they include uh, a fear that a loss of parental control, that if children have rights, parents' rights will be, um, you know, lessened or threatened. Threatened. The spanking coalition is really against There's a this. spanking coalition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. this, one of, the, one of the rights of children is to not experience not only physical abuse, but physical, you know, uh, forms of discipline um, within their uh, protection rights, protecting children from, from violence. So those are a couple of the reasons. Sure. Sure. Interactive. Yeah. Yeah. We're losing the sound here because you don't have a mic. So, if you want to speak, <laughs> use the mic. Come on up there and sit. She has to use California is uh, looking at adopting the. Right, no, no, no. All I wanted to say is that I talked to a couple lawyers in the California Bar Association. They're bringing it up in California this year and expect it to pass in one or more states, but it won't go through every state. And the, that lawyer said that the U.S. does not like to have any external body mm -hmm. yes. um, claim that it has, it, it has any enforcement power. Mm -hmm. uh, which it really wouldn't, but jurisdiction over the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure about that, but that was that, that was one of the people bringing it up to the California bar. Thanks, Mimi. Okay. You said at the beginning of this particular it, it, is, it is legally binding, and there's not a court that enforces it. There are other international treaties that have a, a court. You know the expression, one can be called to the Hague. Mm -hmm. We know that in Kenya, a certain sitting president. Sorry for these asides for taping. But, um, you know, it's, it's, there is a, a mechanism for monitoring. 
it's closely monitored. There are site visits to a country every couple of years, every two years to be exact. And um, there are reports that must be written. You have to have an office in, uh, national, and you can have local ombudspersons um, for children. There, there are several mechanisms that serve to enforce it. There is, one cannot be brought to court on it. Um, so, so it is, there are many ways to examine it. Right now we've been just talking about it legalistically a bit. Uh, you know, Congress hasn't, you know, passed it, and, uh, but it can be viewed as, as law. Um, we've looked at it quite a bit as academics, as discourse. What is the language used and um, how does that shape uh, what we imagine is even possible um, just by raising the idea that you might have a three-year-old consultant on a research project is reshaping some assumptions and discourse. Um, and then it's a set of policies and services that impact everyday life experience, of course. And, and there are three components. Easy way to remember it is the three Ps of the CRC, um, protection, provision, and participation. And I think protection and provision are the most widely understood. And in my research in Africa and to a degree in Greece with um, marginalized communities, including the Roma, that are known as gypsies and so forth, when you're working in those settings, people are keenly aware of the protection and the provision um, of, you know, housing and water and safety and so forth. But what they, even the provision of education, education for all would come under that. But uh, participation rights are the, are the least well understood and misinterpreted, etc. And that's, a, of course, that's what I focus on. Okay. Uh, and this view, would view uh, children as agents? Hi. Good to see you. Know your face? If we don't. Okay. Um, so this view of a child participation rights is uh, very much one emphasizing agency, uh, that they uh, should be recognized as having agency. Uh, and many of the ways that we uh, not just mistreat and ignore children, but we forget that they uh, do have agency and voice, uh, and it's an issue of power that in an anti-oppressive framework, and I also do anti-oppressive education scholarship and workshops and so on, we would probably name that as adultism. Um, ageism, of course, would also imply bias for those my age and older, but, uh, in a certain demographic, but we're talking here about adultism, the power of adults over children uh, to silence them and to not um, listen to their views. So language uh, related to the CRC that gives us a way to talk about that is that children are rights bearers, that they have these um, distinct rights, and that, uh, ch that adults are duty bearers. And I'll talk about the um, are they worthy of investment just because they are versus because who they will be and how they'll be future citizens more in a minute. Um, but I think the piece about us being duty bearers. So a question of a body like this to ask is, you know, hmm, as a duty bearer to children's rights, you know, kind of what are we missing? We're doing all these things. We have this great funding um, for, ch you know, over 700,000 as a city. Um, to facilitate childcare uh, for families of low income, um, and and also not leaving out um, providers of care. So we could talk about more of those things later, that, that they know because they're doing them, and I'm learning about. Um, 
I'm going to give full credit to uh, Professor Valerie Polakow for this framing. It's influenced my work over the years in policy. Um, I teach courses on policy and critical advocacy in early childhood and now in justice studies. And um, she has talked for years about how um, so many government programs and ways we think about and talk about children, how we get money for children's programs are driven by an instrumental, an instrumental discourse. Instrumental uh, maybe is self-evident in this room, but it, it Examples of it are a cost-benefit analysis, pay now, pay later, the Head Start studies. The, you know, we invest a, a, a dollar now in Head Start or in young children, and we may say that later on incarcerations avoided and, you know, uh, picking up, uh, uh, you know, the overrepresented special education labels and that sort of thing. Um, so we, I think we know that discourse very well. Neoliberal policies embody that discourse, uh, uh, often to the exclusion of a more existential one. You know, the existential argument is because kids exist. You know, they have innate worth, simply put. Um, and they have those rights. And um, I have reference here. So, so you, there's also a discussion within uh, people who write about children's rights about being versus becoming. And an existential would, view would be that they are being. So therefore, they are deserving of our support, our best thinking, and their consultation. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and this is just a word about the state I'm coming from, even though we've had a big initiative called First Things First, but in fact, for a while funded some of the research I'll tell you about, we still rank second from the bottom, you know, in child poverty. Um, we, we were the last state the last state to finally get kids care back, which is a form of insurance for um, children of working poor, um, uh, not children who qualify for, you know, other programs for lower income. Uh, and we just brought it back. They had they, the legislature closed, and then they came back for one day just to pass that. That was a good example of lobbying for children and their rights, I, I guess. Um, so. Uh, I come from a place where the existential value of children, 19,000 children in foster care, in state custody, and we are not a large state by population. Okay. I'm not here to talk about my state, I'm here to talk <laughs> about the possibilities of a more progressive context like Madison, Wisconsin. Not necessarily Wisconsin, but Madison. Um, so we'll just stop for a moment here, and I realize now that the microphones may limit discussion a little bit, but just to take a couple of minutes and see whether this notion of being versus becoming or someone else has named it deferred citizenship, referring to children as not having full citizenship, even though they do, <laughs> technically, um, that, that it's deferred. Um, do any of these concepts sort of click with your experiences? And maybe we could just get an example or two from the committee that asked me to come. And if anybody outside of a microphone wants to come to the table to comment. Um, the floor is open. Hmm. Um. The, let me give the example of the uh, cost-benefit analysis. I remember being president at a city-county council meeting, could be early 80s, and when the research on dollar invested and dollars gained was gaining some popularity, one of my colleagues quoted it verbatim right ahead of me. And I said, that's not quite all of it because it doesn't have everything in it. Mm -hmm. Parent satisfaction, pr 
pride, mm. joy at graduation. The fact that the family says, and we, we did, my husband had done some research in, in Chicago neighborhoods where the kid who graduated from high school in that particular low-income housing project was adulated because Jimmy knows everything. You just ask Jimmy. He's, he's smart. And that kind of value isn't put in the cost-benefit analysis at all. They try a good game, and it comes from the corporate world and the military world, and it's it's been helpful, but don't follow it all as a hook, line, and sinker, that that's the real answer. So I think it's that kind of uh, existential reality that, in ordinary discourse, people would talk about. I, I think well, Diane, are you kind of saying what I was thinking about, this dissonance between the dollar that's invested now and what happens later, and there's really no conversation and not much discourse about what happens in between, in between that yes, time. Because you have all of the money. I mean, that's the argument people make is invest now so that X, Y doesn't happen later. Um, but yet and still, why are incarceration rates increasing? Why are so many more students in special education? Why are those students mostly children of color? So we're not dealing with racism anywhere in between. Um, and, you know, that, that, that discussion just doesn't happen. And until well, that it, it discussion happens. It's a way happens, to capture the imagination of policymakers yeah. and say, look, if you'll just put the money now, it'll be a guarantee. Well, it's not a guarantee, but it is, there's, a, there's some evidence that it is worth it. Well, what is that evidence? But, but that's, 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 you know. That's another piece that comes in, too, is that we're just looking at the Speak book. into the mic, see. That's another piece that comes in as well, is that we're just looking at the bookends and not actually reading the books, so to speak, because we have all of this programming for free, you know, we've, we've got preschool, Head Start, and then we've got all this programming for pre-college and things like that. But, what, but then we look at our middle schools and we don't even have after-school programs for them. We have very limited options for middle school and even early high school, and sometimes in some cases those um, later three, um, third through fourth, for third, fourth and fifth grade students. And so it begs the question: Why are we, why are we so focused on the bookends when you've got a whole series of books that you're not reading? I would and disagree with that things. statement. Actually, I don't think we are nearly as focused on early childhood as we should be. No. Little kids are lost constantly not ready to go to school. There's not nearly enough resources put there. And Madison does have some um, with the most program this, um, that is a collaboration between schools and the city um, for that, the middle, not nearly enough again. There's not nearly enough on high school kids. There's just not nearly enough mm -hmm. for the problem that we're facing. And so the, the question comes from where do we pull these resources? Because everyone feels that they're resource poor. Mm -hmm. I come against that as a policymaker. Mm -hmm. I come with that all the time. Do we need to have? We do. Yes, we do. But it's, it's this that's making the most noise. What we heard is graduation rates and abysmal graduation rates, especially for kids of color. Mm -hmm. So that's what we heard. That's what we heard. And people started paying more attention to that, of course, and putting more resources there. 
But as long as that's the only place we're putting resources, we're always going to be putting resources mm -hmm. there. And so, you know, how do we, because in the interim, it costs more money. It absolutely does. This isn't like we can't stop paying attention to this mm -hmm. while we're doing these other things. So where do we pull those resources from? And that's, that's the question that we seem to always spin around, and we need to be able to somehow get over that hurdle and understand that there is simply going to be more investment for the next 25 years if we start today, or 50. It, we didn't get here in one generation. And it's going to take more than one generation to get us out of here. So that's where I come from. I don't have the answers to that, but if you have some answers to that, I'd be happy to listen. Or anyone else at this table or in this room. Yeah. Well, we could even, excuse me. If I no, no, go right ahead. <laughs> we could even unpack this more by looking at the programs that are receiving money, the after-school programs that are receiving money. A friend of mine went over to the Boys and Girls Club on the west side and um, noticed that most of, if not all, of the workers um, in this, at this particular program site were white women, and young white women, who were bossing around yelling at black children. So, I mean, we can break this down to minutia if we wanted to when we talk about the rights of the child. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how children are treated mm -hmm. when we want to focus on parental discipline and the spanking. How about white women hollering and screaming at young black kids? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we could just really, you know, get down to the, to the real basics about what, about children's voices and what our kids are thinking um, because that's where it really is. How does that child go home thinking, well, this white woman is screaming and hollering at me, and what do I think about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's That to me, you know, so my race, my focus, my lens is from the racist point of view, from the racism. So the critical race lens needs to be part brought into the conversation mm -hmm. as well, and I'm not going to let people forget that. Yeah. Good. So we can have all of this mm -hmm. way up here talk about rights of the child, but let's get down to what it really, truly is. So. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there is to be included in this conversation yep. because yep. of the fact that that is a direct impact. So not including critical race theory in these conversations is doing a disservice to actually moving forward and having some real conversations that need to be had because at the end of the day, you know, when we're sitting in a situation of where we're still referring to it as an achievement gap, mm -hmm. when that focuses yeah. solely on and it puts the onus on the child as opposed mm -hmm. to the resources and opportunities that are offered to that child, that's a problem because mm -hmm. everywhere else on the spectrum we're referring to it as an opportunity gap. Right. Mm -hmm. But then we still, like, yeah. literally sitting in a meeting this week, heard someone, you know, we've really got to work on the achievement mm -hmm. gap. And I'm like, no, it's mm -hmm. not an achievement gap because that, that framing in and of itself puts all of the responsibility on the child mm -hmm. and is stating mm -hmm. that the child isn't achieving, but then when we have data that shows that, yes, the, we have tons of children achieving in spite of, mm -hmm. then that's giving false reports mm -hmm. that, well, we have an achievement gap, but how are these other kids achieving? So the data offsets itself when we don't even use the correct language. I like, I've recently in my writing been using Eddie Gloud's uh, phrase of value gap. Um, he heads up African African American <laughs> studies up at uh, Eastern University. I just moved records, I think. And um, he is talking about the valuing. You invest in what you value. 
you know, and your staff around what you value. So points well taken. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really good. Or be loud, whichever you prefer. Probably the mic is better. Um, so I just want to contribute to that aspect of the discussion by saying that not only where the funding is coming from, but what's being done with the funding is also um, supporting that very issue because um, currently the um, quality rating systems and the way that they're being implemented are disproportionately targeting mm -hmm. um, low-income populations, low-income women, um, low-income families, and the way, um, as we all know, the larger portion of African-American and um, non-English speaking families are um, represented in low-income families and also of the providers. They are the ones with probably most often lower education and when the education levels are so high that um, the current providers can't serve their current communities because, well because their rates are lowered or they have to work and go to school, um, their programs are closing. All of those things are, again, um, disproportionately impacting, increasing the number of white providers, for example, who are able to serve in those programs as teachers. And so I just want to name that as it's not just about where the funding comes, but what's being done with it and how that also um, you know, unintentionally, I'm sure, but enforces this institutional racism process that's happening that mm -hmm. um, I would suggest, again, to look at our values about that and how that is implemented. And uh, Lacey uh, Peters here and um, Mark Nakagawa and I have published a couple of art articles that relate directly to that in a book chapter and a book that Mimi and I have, and, um, you know, we'd be happy to revisit that, basically looking at the climate of quality rating scales and, uh, and, and doing in some ways a critical race theory based analysis of that, but also looking at the old three-legged stool of child care. This goes way back, right? The, uh, when you have the accessibility, affordability, and quality, and the whole focus, you've got that quality leg on steroids and you're neglecting, you're not, I'm not saying that in an accusing way, but the potential for then neglecting, you know, access and, you know, culturally relevant teaching with people who are from similar backgrounds as the children being their primary caregivers, you might be missing out on the other two legs of the, of the stool. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sure. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you talk, but you, you started out with the cost-benefit analysis, um, which drives a lot of things. Now it's also early brain development, mm -hmm. um, which is not bad at all, but I wanted to come back to the cost-benefit analysis stuff because when we look at children as um, potentially at risk from a very, very early age, because if you don't give them a quality program for half a day, at an early age, even one year, that's the way they talk about the studies that the cost-benefit analysis, the dollar, one, $17 is based on one year of high-quality preschool, usually a half-day program, if you dig into the longitudinal studies that that's based on. Then you are also doing two things, I think, that are important. First of all, you're saying if the children are not in that type of a program, 
and, men, and the majority of children are not at all, um, then you're saying almost immediately that they're at risk for failure mm -hmm. down the line in one capacity or possibly at risk to go to prison. So there is an implicit other label that's already so it's a targeted thing. The second thing, and I thought Diane Adams being at the table with all honor t toward her that we should point out is that when we also talk about half-day preschool, high-quality preschool, and the money being targeted toward that, which there's, you know, it's good and bad. I'm an early educator, so I can't be totally against more money at the preschool level, right? But we are forgetting also about child care. Yeah. And, um, and in Madison, uh, for it, I guess we're being, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to the mics here. We have four-day, two-and-a-half-hour-a-day preschool at the 4K program that does not meet the needs of a vast number of families. And it's partially because of the early longitudinal studies and the cost-benefit analysis stuff that comes out of that that we're so focused on half-day uh, programs, which I'm not opposed to, but we, it allows us to miss a lot of very important aspects mm -hmm. of the child's life and the family's life and family needs. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't even have enough programs <laughs> at that level. I admit it, but I just wanted to, and now I will. Thank you very much. The other piece about your about using the research in a global way, it has to inform our practice. That's for sure, because nothing would ever get better if there wasn't research about this aspect or that of of our field. But to take never get away from common sense and the and the role of families and the role of parents. Mm -hmm. That supportive role for parents is destroyed, has, was destroyed in 1992 by uh, causing thousands, millions across the country of low-income women to leave a secure income where they stayed at home with their children and were in parent groups and other kinds of things to go out into the labor force under welfare reform. So the whole country was upset about it, but it, it rode well and it passed the Congress and was implemented in our state with lots of money because the advocates said only if you fund child care. And they did. It was $2 billion the first year for the whole country. But it has to be with common sense because then the working parent has no time to be the mother and the, mm -hmm. the person who's there for everything. And so we've, we do everything whole hog without going into the implications. So I think that's what you're saying. I don't understand that statement. If you could explain it more. So if a mother is working outside the home, she doesn't have time to be a mother when she is there? No, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, the, time, the timing issue was, was very difficult because they were thrown into this right away, and they had to just 
go. Okay. And it and varied by state so much. In New York, in fact, it was a, at one point it was a six-week leave, I believe. It got as short as that under welfare reform to to be away from your infant, right. um, to have the baby be back, and then mm-hmm. you know it was. Well, up to the states. Up yeah, to the so states. it's meant. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of working mothers that mm-hmm. might take it. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank I didn't you. mean that way. I would like to respond to that, actually, and share Just some of the come to the mic. Here's the seat here if you want to. Oh, I'll, I don't mind moving. Okay. <laughs> I think that if you think about mothers working outside of the home, um, you know, sure, that makes a lot of sense if they're actually making an adequate income. And if they actually have possibly a regular schedule instead of a rotating schedule or a second or third shift or evening schedule. Mm-hmm. But most often the women that were um, subject to the welfare to work experience, they didn't have consistent work. They often worked in um, non-regular positions mm-hmm. where their shift could be pulled at any moment, which also meant that their funding for their child care could be pulled at any moment. And that meant that the child care providers that tried to do service for them were very, had a very difficult time, mm-hmm. and many providers no longer do that because they simply can't afford to have their own incomes um, back, back and forth, shall we say. And um, so there's a lot of different issues and there's a lot of different perspectives. And also, if you are on the bus at 6 a.m., if you do happen to have a regular job that maybe pays you minimum wage, and it takes you an hour to get to your child care program, and then you drop off your child, and then you have to get to work, and then you have to get back. Those are different experiences than parents mm-hmm. that have adequate employment mm-hmm. with adequate benefits, mm-hmm. and they don't have time to parent their children in a way that they want to. Thank you for your comments. I just think it's very important that we expand this conversation because it is being recorded. And so if yeah. people watching this here just a blank statement. I mean, there's so much context right. to go with right. that. People at this table understand your comments, but not everyone that watches it, and hopefully it's um, widely watched. Um, they, they might not pick up on that. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Beth, go on. I'm, I'm uh, not going to dwell a lot on the research aspects of this uh, when you involve children in program planning, I'm going to just refer you to the handouts. What I did before coming to Wisconsin was try to pull, um, not from my own work for the most part, I I am leaving one article that, in in fact, we co-authored on child Mm well-being. It has examples that go into the elementary, middle school years, by the way, as well as my infant toddler examples. But uh, generally, the handouts are uh, drawing from work of colleagues in Australia and New Zealand. And they raised uh, some pretty obvious issues and then some more subtle points about what it means to consult with children. And by the way, they work with the child care community. They work with people who are already with those children every day and are familiar with them. And when they come in, they would, they would probably come three visits before they would deign to have a conversational interview, you know, hanging out with children, entering their life world, uh, seeing what they think about things. So um, that's, that's where I said not that we need to pour over them. And I'm, in fact, at the end, I hope to have time to point out specific pages of each article that are probably most relevant to, to what you're up to. Uh, but I really do want to talk about some examples um, of child consultation. And um, I again, I've told you where I'm drawing from. We also applied child consultation in a study that uh, I co-directed, a statewide study in Arizona uh, that Lacey Peters worked on, and in fact, her dissertation drew from the child-level data in that study. Um, 
then I was part uh, with colleagues of a Five Nations ed Education Rights Consultation. Um, and it was basically engaging in the question, well, children weren't consulted on the writing of the CRC. What if they were? <laughs> um, and a chance to go back and ask them about what they would add uh, to, to their education rights. And then most recently, I directed a project with infants and toddlers. And we were, it was a rights-based project in some ways. So we were interested to know, how do you discern the opinions and experiences of the youngest children in care? Um, so I won't talk a lot about all those, but that's where I'm drawing from. Um, some of my favorite examples, probably because I have been a, uh, a researcher in residence there and have gotten to go to the field with colleagues who wrote the articles that I share with you. Uh, so I've seen them in action. And um, it's just been very inspiring to see how many different branches of government get involved. Um, one of my favorite examples, and it's written up in the article that addresses safety children's views of safety comes from a, a, a smaller uh, part of the city. They would call probably a suburb uh, called Port Phillip. And uh, Lacey is very, very familiar with some of these examples. Um, and then others are included in the article. But what excited me so much is that the mayor got behind it. And then um, all aspects of city government. I went to um, uh, a community cafe, they called it, I think, where you go to different tables and have dialogues with different people. And the whole thing was about child safety in our community. And they had the police there. They had um, people from the education sector there. They had health and human. They had all the sectors were there listening for what their branch of government could do differently that honored children's views. Um, some of them there more or less willingly, you know, uh, some pushing back. But the comp so one point is the comprehensiveness that this can take when you really take it seriously. Um, another was just what happened when they asked children through interviews in their child care centers about what would make their community more, more safe or what would make them uh, happier, et cetera. And um, one of the, uh, those are just a few examples under the second bullet point, um, a focus on health checks where when they would go in to see the uh, doctor um, or in a community health setting, the health care provider would always talk across them. They would say, I just wish that, that my nurse or that doctor would tell me what's going on, would talk to me, mm -hmm. you know, about my health, not about me, but to me. Mm -hmm. So that was one example. Um, another was that, you know, they had concerns about their playgrounds, about safety, about, you know, that some had trash heaps and so forth. It's almost like the specifics don't matter as much as the process. Um, they talked about – they. Uh, videotaped the library story times for very young children and um, just analyzed, this team analyzed uh, how infants were responding. Uh, and they needed shorter story times. They needed some different kinds of things going on. Um, and by paying close attention, they made some changes. Um, children talked about their broader community. If some of the signs had pictures, which, which some do internationally, of course, and locally, um, or if the light was longer. They talked about the fear of crossing the street. They didn't have time to get across the street. And that municipality changed the walk time. And, of course, obviously that didn't benefit only children. Mm -hmm. That benefited anyone who's moving a little more slowly, who needs a little more time to, to get across the street. And importantly, after they took various actions, and you'd have to think about locally what areas you would consult with children about um, and what are your issues, um, they reported back to the children. And I think that is so important, just in terms of ethics of research, period. Any research with 
human beings. You should get back to them with what you found out, you know, and what you're doing with those data and so on whenever you can. Um, but they reported back, and I appreciated that. And then they also had a display in their town hall, and it was at children's eye level. So they had the children's drawings and the direct quotes, and there was even just pushback about that. They said, well, put them at the, at the average place. That's where we have hooks to hang things. And they said, no, the whole point of this project is to honor our youngest citizens and their perspective is to give their views due weight. So let's make it accessible uh, uh, to children. Um, moving uh, to Northern uh, Ireland, as I mentioned, um, she's a legal scholar first, a scholar of the UNCRC among her expertise, Laura Lundy, um, and now a professor of education. So she bridges uh, law and education. Um, and she's been doing research that moves children from, you know, being... Um, the subject of research to being uh, collaborators in the research, co-investigators, um, and not just in name only, has really struggled to do so authentically. Um, and what that means is you have to suspend some of your research questions till you consult with children. Mm -hmm. You can't go in with the answers. You can't. And I'm saying this to myself, and we talked about that a lot when we collaborated lately about, you know, how do we walk the talk of this stuff? Because it's one thing to see it and get an idea, and things always look better if they're doing them in another country, but then you try to bring it home and do it in your own context, and you want to be sure you're walking the talk. Um, so part of the idea is you're building children's research capacity, capacity building. Um, and an example of a project of Laura's, not to belabor it, because um, we don't have a lot, a lot of uh, time. I have another discussion item before we end. Um, when they said, well, what helps you come to school ready to learn? All this readiness discourse, you know. And um, it was easier for children to say what gets in the way of their learning. Um, and they went right to after-school programs. These were early elementary kids, kindergarten through about third grade in their study. Um, and they also uh, were consulted when they did collect the data. So kids had input on what they focused on in their project. Kids had input on how they asked the questions and involved children of their age or younger. And then kids got to hear some feedback at the end. Um, and we tried to um, emulate that in a study I'll talk about in just a minute. This is another group. Uh, this is a nonprofit, um, also based in Belfast. And they've taken on the, the issue of play. Um, and uh, we all know how under threat play is um, through various policies, regimes of mm -hmm. testing. If it's not tested, it, it doesn't have time in the school day, increasingly uh, pushed down to the early years uh, settings. Um, a phrase, in fact, that some colleagues have started to use is a right to childhood. Just to childhood. Um, and, of course, that includes the right to play, which is Article 31, Section 12 of the CRC. Um, and so they, uh, I got to meet children. I got to go to one of their, um, their conferences. And they were doing workshops on lobbying and um, advocacy. These were older. These were middle school um, students for the most part, upper elementary, middle school. Um, but I really uh, appreciated that. They were really empowered. And there are many models of that in the United States. I do a lot of work with um, Pueblo Indian communities in New Mexico, uh, and I work with the, um, I'm an associate faculty member with the uh, 
Santa Fe Indian School Leadership Institute, and right now they're having a summer uh, leadership institute for indigenous youth in uh, New Mexico and beyond, and uh, they are doing amazing things. They'll make recommendations that the legislature will hear, that mayors of communities will hear, that their pueblos um, and indigenous governments will hear. Um, doing a lot of permaculture work, a lot of things around farming and gardening and uh, water rights and so forth. Just another example. Okay. Community planning. Why would you build houses or start a new neighborhood with no playground, etc.? Um, who are the planning people? How can we have access to them? I mean, kids ask good questions. We all, we all know that. I was happy even on Wart Radio to hear children from Winger School. I think it is a private school, but uh, in any case, they, they had a, they had time on Wart. You know, they were they were doing a half hour during a fundraising time. You know, and, um, so that moved some of us to pledge. <laughs> Your children taking over the radio. Um, so our child and family case study, family and community case study, um, involved consulting with with first to third grade children about how we should interview younger children. So we wanted to talk to children before they got to kindergarten and after, and we later had conversations with about um, 110 children across the state. Um, what we're learning, that should say what we learned. Um, they gave us some very interesting advice. They, they said, ask them how much TV or how much screen time they're having, what they're learning in preschool. Are they going to be ready for kindergarten? Do they know about homework? You know, they, several of them had uh, younger siblings. Um, this is what the first, second, third graders were telling us. Um, they told us we should make our interviews fun. <laughs> um, we should, you know, some Play-Doh or Legos and so forth. And, Ask Lacey, we did. You know, yeah, she conducted we did, definitely. Of these. Yeah. And they got in small groups and took notes. Um, uh, what do you like about school? They, and if they circled things that they prioritized. So they, uh, we utilized a focus group methodology with them. And uh, they reported out. Uh, and then we came back and said, you know, our interview protocol reflects your input. Thank you. <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah, if go, I, right. go right ahead. Jump in. Interesting uh, part of this process was also working with our colleagues at other institutions because the study was carried out with two other state universities. And when we had mentioned that we would like to consult with children before we put the interview protocol together, they were curious to know why, or they even questioned even the purpose and asked, you know, what's the point and what are children, you know, those types of framing, I suppose, what are they going to tell us that we don't already know, or why, you know, what, what new questions will they bring into the conversation and that sort of thing, and then after they went through this, many of the, I think many of the PIs, if you want to call them that, or just the leaders of the different teams at different institutions did the focus groups with children themselves, and they came back on the phone, and they were like, wow, we didn't expect to hear some of these questions that they raised, and in some communities, there were um, children who spoke different languages other than English. Mm -hmm. And so some of the questions they raised were like, well, can you ask what it's like to be a child who has to translate for their parent or, pr or primary caregiver, mm -hmm. things to that effect, and just some really complex issues that manifest within children's life, life experiences. But sometimes adults don't uh, think that they're processing these nuances. So it's really interesting just to see how the perspective shifted just by doing this consult consultation process. 
There's a person over there who wants to speak. Oh, sorry. Sure. Question. So, talking about uh, languages other than English, can you talk a little bit about. Sorry, because of the taping. Hi. Can you talk a little bit about the discourse and how that does or does not extend to protecting uh, rights to language access or language access rights for children? Uh, sure. I mean, I can say a little bit about it now and then maybe come back to it at the end. Um, but certainly the right to want the right to a name, the right to a culture. I mean, naming may sound like why, you know, but the right to have a name, to be called by that name, the right to your language and your culture. There, there are whole cultural aspects of uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, you know, and that is, is something to you know, keep in mind um, uh, as you use it as a tool for advocacy. Mm -hmm. And um, also it's, it has sometimes been a critique of it as more Western, et cetera, even though many global South countries had input, were at the table uh, for both the international uh, document, Declaration of Human Rights and the CRC. Uh, but it, it has footholds in it. It has language that can be used to support, um, you know, language maintenance, culture maintenance, etc. And has to do, because it does have language about one, their right to their uh, name, their family, their culture. And that is conveyed through home language, mother tongue, if you will. But Does that help? Need, we're going to need to adjourn our meeting and then open back up in just discussion because we lost quorum. Just a technicality it's for just us. It's a Doesn't technicality, but we just have to do it. Anything else? But can we, can we need to vote on an adjournment or just. We do. So, yeah. how can we vote if we don't have a quorum? But anyway. Um, quorum. We've lost quorum, and so our meeting needs to close. We'll just change to a more of an informal discussion as opposed to an official part of the meeting. So is there a motion to adjourn and then continue on with discussion? So moved. Thank you. Okay. So there's a second. All in favor of adjournment? Aye. 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 Opposed? Meeting is adjourned. We'll continue, we'll continue on to start technicality. Something else I was thinking of, because this, is, this has come up in discussion before, is as we've been trying to expand access to high-quality care, kind of getting at the concern you brought up earlier, which was we increase the quality of care, which increasingly brings out of access of the entire population. That is our point for sitting at this table. Right. Is that we've been trying to look more at um, the family child care centers, especially because a lot of our non-English speaking, non-native English speaking families prefer, we saw when Vernia was here, we saw a lot of those families when they were calling were seeking out of family child care providers. They weren't looking for center-based care. They wanted to stay in their communities where we do have a lot of native-speaking providers. And so then the question kind of becomes to the committee, and this is where we, where we kind of are right now, is we've been dealing with for probably the last six months or so, how does the city support those providers to better reach out to that population because those are the providers that that population is interested in, which is, which is great. We don't want it to be, no, you go to the center, we know better, you go to this provider, which is a center-based program. We want to support them going to any place that's a high-quality center. And so we've been thinking about, all right, how do we, as the city, support family child care providers such that they can be accessed by those students as well, or those children as well. And that's been the logistical trick, but I think we're, well, I think we've been moving in a positive direction. We're going to be supporting family child care a little bit more with our funding process. But I am so glad you raised that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
she said, shifting her talk altogether, because I also co-directed a statewide child care demand study mm-hmm. um, at the time we were doing this. You were also involved with that. You know, we're part of a larger project team, Lacey and me. Um, but we found uh, in doing a, a statewide quite large end study, like everywhere in the U.S., that um, the majority of, of families uh, wanted a home-based care, mm-hmm. particularly in the first two and a half to three years, 70 percent. Mm-hmm. 70% of our uh, families. And so beyond that, um, one thing we do have in Arizona that's working well is kith and kin. Mm-hmm. Kith and kin, family, friend, and neighbor. And, and we're able to offer through the Association for Supportive Child Care, an agency that I've been on the board for about 12 years, uh, a webinar. There's a, a nationally accessible webinar, and Helen Blank is going to be speaking on the next one. And, you know, we've had several uh, national leaders be part of that. Um, so that is something that, you know, this community is certainly known for, uh, for family-based uh, child care. But the Kith and Kin uh, program, um, you know, and its webinar series that are, of course, taped and available for viewing later, et cetera, um, might be a, a resource. That, that doesn't address the whole, is funding equitable, and how do you apply a five-star rating system? And, of course, you know, in Arizona, and I imagine here, you have a modified, you know, uh, rating <coughs> system for different kinds no. of, of child care, different settings. We no. have a distinctive uh, rating system. I'm finding something good to say about Arizona. It's really fun. <laughs> but um, it, it's distinct to the kind of setting. So... Um, a family provider wouldn't be held to the same standards as a, as a center-based setting. It doesn't mean they're lower standards. They're different standards. You know, they're not hiring a staff. They're not going out looking for people with four-year degrees, usually, um, and they might be. So and maybe enough on that. I'm sort of pre-associating on those topics right now, but, yeah. One other thought Very about valid. rights of children that is perplexing in our society uh, back about 400, 500 years ago, especially in European cultures, the concept of miniature adults came about. And all the photographs, all the paintings you see of little children dressed in adult outfits and looking just like adults, only shorter, was, a, was seen as, you know, that was just the way they understood children and childhood. Then came along the scientists like Frabel in the kindergarten, and children are invaluable in their own rights. And then we had children's clothing and children's, you know, apparatus and so on. And we came to, to really understand that. We still find it difficult to really believe that these little tiny people can say something. And, and as a matter of fact, we find a lot of them with their thumbs on handheld device, devices. And it's rather frightening to think what they might have learned in between being valued as an individual with rights and somebody who's pro- already programmed into a larger society's values. So it, there's a little bit of caution there, I think, which children are just kind of kids and which have been already programmed in another way so oh sorry go ahead so just to add to that too um so i'm working now in new york city and the expansion of universal pre-kindergarten is very much on the forefront of the mayor's uh policy initiatives and 
just the early childhood field in general, but you see not only chil- children just being reduced to numbers, and so we have the quality rating systems in place, but now also these and what children. they refer to as authentic assessment tools, and many of them are just aligned with various rubrics, and they're giving ratings based on mm-hmm. their development along a continuum, and it's meant to be... Um, I guess useful in some ways and supposed to be speaking to various uh, ways that they're progressing along different learning domains and so forth, but even thinking about the mech, how normalizing the, of a mechanism this is and reducing funds of knowledge and also, like I said, just reducing children to numbers. And then when we think about uh, this whole readiness discourse, how do we resituate children so that they are at the center and we're paying closer attention to children just as a group who are younger human beings, but then also as they exist within their cultural and social and cultural context. And it's it's scary to see in many ways how New York City also, you know, setting, everyone's looking to New York City. This is a massive expansion and saying, let's see what they do and let's see what works and let's carry it over into other states or localities. And um, we're not, we're losing the child. And it's, it's mm-hmm. I guess, uh, the advocacy component is key in figuring out how to maneuver your way into those conversations. And so it's very, I guess, as an aside, mm-hmm. encouraging to be here to see that there are some more questions for us, Beth. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm going to – now, these, these are things that uh, children told Lacey, uh, but, but time is getting tight. I mean, the last one referred to regimes of discipline and making the connection, going to the principal's office like going to jail. I'm sure it never was in your case, uh, Ms. Sims. And how they, they – do you want to do you want to talk to this one? How how children picked up on what they what they want to be happening and then what might really be happening? And go ahead, Lacey. Yeah, sure. So in talking to children, obviously <laughs> the dichotomy of between play and work was very much uh, discussed as they compared preschool to their preschool experiences to kindergarten experiences. <laughs> and in this study, we preschool um, encompassed all different types of settings. So some children were in Head Start programs, some in private preschool programs, some homeschooled and that sort of thing. So anyway, but this was just, um, you really saw how just it just really reflected all of the major trends you see going on in terms of compliance. Um, and when you enter into kindergarten, you lose choices. And, you know, it's a lot of, too, what we encourage is providing children with autonomy or choices in early childhood settings. And that was um, definitely something they took they took notice of is that mm-hmm. big kids school and we often call kindergarten big kids school and it, they're like wow this isn't what I expected it would be you know as you grow older you're expecting to have more opportunity to have a say in what you do and this this is just one example of how that's not what's going on and then you also see a lot in terms of just instructional practices so with language and literacy for instance we know there's a lot of attention being paid to how children are learning to read and now scientifically based reading research and things of that nature so instead of talking about opening books and enjoying just good literature children were saying oh I open a book and I can identify the sight word or let me decompose this word for you and it's really strange to see how all of and even with technology and their use of just devices it's just everything is really shifting and that we're, again, losing the child, but now the whole child. Mm-hmm. So they had quite a critique um, of kindergarten. 
bottom line. <laughs> the, children, the 110 children we talked to, the ones just coming in, were kind of, gee, I better learn a few more letters. They kind of ha- were getting a bit of the warnings about what to prepare for, mm-hmm. and then fully into it. You know, this was January, February of their kindergarten year or something uh, that spring. Um, and these were just a few other insights we had from that study. <clears throat> and the important thing, too, about the feedback loop, that we did change iterations of the protocol or what we were doing uh, based on what we were learning from the children. Um, I think we have already discussed, and this group very well knows, uh, child advocacy strategies. Um, I guess keep asking, uh, how might a child experience this? Um, and when you have events that bring community, university, when you have various kinds of events, to uh, consider a children's component in those events. Like if you're having hearings on something, you know, maybe facilitate a way that, that you could hear from children. There's an example there of local to global justice. We're in our 15th year. Each year we have a different theme. This year it was racial justice. Uh, last year it was water justice, etc. And so we are uh, we always have activities for children at that. Children as young as as, as two or three at this event. It draws four or five hundred people, and we have a youth keynoter at this every year, every year. So just what our events were doing anyway, that we could add a youth component in a nutshell. <clears throat> and then because this, re- I'm almost finished, but this relates to child care. Um, and I return to uh, some of Val Palico's work. Um, she has a very powerful uh, book about just child care, the child care crisis in the other America. <clears throat> came out several years ago. Uh, again, she's saying that children should be treated as ends, not means. Um, and that uh, their, their rights are routinely violated in many systems, not only child care, um, and that sometimes framing uh, certain not only quality but just access and affordability of those programs could be framed as a human right. So really underscores very much our uh, earlier discussion. Um, and this was another opportunity just to discuss what are challenges we face? You know, these may be good ideas. What are times we may feel we didn't enact something that was rights-based or uh, that, that put us in a position to be an ally and not just an advocate, an ally with children? Um, and then, of course, um, any sense of a vision for Madison as a child-friendly city um, that, that um, you might have discussed or might have today. I know these are huge questions, and no, we're about to get disgusted. That's why I'm always picking okay. my teeth okay. because okay. I should. <laughs> well, because we know that there's more than one Madison. Yeah, yeah. Um, there clearly are. There yeah. clearly are. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Beware the white progressive context. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. It's wrought with implicit racism and classism. I know Madison very well. And now I come here as an outsider, and I stroll around Farmer's Market, and what do I always say? It's not very white city. You know, I know we're still taping. But, I mean, it, 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 it's a challenging environment to come up with color, someone learning English. You know, the litany is long. And when you look at the incarceration rates per capita, Madison no longer looks like this, you know, city on the hill that's all aglow. I just want to acknowledge that I'm aware of that. I don't know it. I don't live it. Um, but it's very important. So that's a huge challenge in honoring all children's uh, voices. Well, I think you can't also get away from the fact that, for instance, this very committee 
is part of a bureaucracy. And bureaucracy, I love this, explaining if you don't know it, comes from a French word, bureau, in which the drawers that hold items are separate. And you can't get from that drawer to this drawer by going through the chest. You have to go outside and then come back in again. And the word bureaucracy does imply that there are systems that are working separate from other systems. Integrated systems is an oxymoron in government, in a way. So the more we attempt to humanize, in this case, listen to children, it's a, maybe it's seen as an artifact of helping that bureaucracy, but not this one. So until the water utility says, we don't charge you for having the water spout on when kids are playing, <laughs> you know, that would be an example of a far-fetched, far-field thing. So I think it's, it's difficult in a bureaucracy to give up your rules, regulations, authority, and those are not words that children are, you know, used to proclaiming. They proclaim. Well, and we fight the battle constantly. I know Muriel brings this up uh, frequently, which is we want to increase access and availability without compromising on quality. We don't want to make a, like a second-tier system, you know, for some people because yeah. they can afford it and lower the quality. So it's always – and we do it with accreditation often where we have these centers that – really would love to get accredited they you know they would benefit so much there's you know there's such a high use center in a community but it's been four years and we can't drag them across the finish line and then it's do we continue to help them even though we're supposed to only be dealing with centers that are you know working towards accreditation it's it's a very difficult dance i think between that accessibility and that and that quality i want to hijack a little bit and ask some questions here about you know, because I'm I'm kind of this very task-oriented person, and as you've been talking, I've had some you know, ideas of you know. I guess what I'm taking is has implications for some of the stuff we do, because a lot of our, I guess our committee or the city's child care community services kind of division. What we do is really kind of broken into two pieces, the accreditation part and then kind of the funding part. And a lot of what I'm hearing you say is to really involve and legitimize and value children's involvement in those processes. And so what I've been thinking as you've been talking is how can we involve children's perspective in, say, what is funded and what is supported and also in how centers are accredited. And so as I'm thinking about that, and I, I asked Connie as, as you were talking, during the accreditation visits, which are substantial, yeah, yeah. Um, do, do we ever talk to the kids? That's a good question. And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there are observations of teachers interacting with kids. There's lots of things that involve kids. But, and, and I'm a psychometrician by background, but on the, when I teach assessment, the best day of when I teach assessment is talking about affective assessments and actually just saying some of the most valuable data you can get from your students is saying, what didn't work for you in this lesson? How did you feel when this was going on? Are you more confident about the content now than you were when you came in? So I, I'm a full believer in that. So one of the things I took away from what you were saying was maybe something we should look at putting into our accreditation standards is either – the child care specialist has to talk to children in the center or the center has to provide evidence or data of some kind that they have gathered feedback, both directly from parents. I mean, parents is what they do a better, better implies that one is worse, but parents, they do a pretty good job already of having to have parents on boards and things, but that they have to collect direct feedback from children 
So that's one part. On the accreditation side, there has to be direct data gathered from children. And then on the funding side, it was a little bit more difficult because our funding process is in flux, which has been, I don't know, a four-year flux, I suppose. But in the funding process, the way it was, which is not going to stay, but we could have required that the applicants include evaluation components where they gather data from kids. We always go back and forth on this. Again, Miriam and I always talk about this because we're the kind of evaluation-focused folks. But how much do you require of these applicants to jump through hoops and do more evaluation with this limited pot of funds? Because then you give an implied benefit to these massive centers and put a disadvantage to these smaller centers. So we're always juggling that. We want to hold them to high standards. But at some point, it's not worth it for them. They get $6,000, and it took them four days of work and 1,000 pages of paperwork. So, but that's another component that we could do with the funding side is require more of involvement of the kids in who is, in, in who is funded. And then I was also running down, I think, I think Alder DeMar would appreciate this, that I was actually drafting it like, in legislative language of like something about that with regard to city committees, that they shall make provisions for the direct involvement of their service population. So that like on an annual basis, this committee, for example, as the child care committee, I mean, it would be hard to have a, a four-year-old, I suppose, come monthly and sit through this. Some of us struggle with it. That's not the international model, no. No, probably not the best idea. Yeah, but there would be toys. That would be better for all of us, I think. But that in language, in language that at least... <laughs> on an annual basis, the committee has to create an opportunity to gather direct feedback from children with regard to the services. So it doesn't have to be that they sit here and sit through all the minutia, but that every committee, so the Committee on Aging and all these other specific populations, have to really make a proactive effort, you know, that it's in-city statute, essentially. They have to make proactive provision to involve the participants. So those are just kind of some of the three things that, that I took away from what you've been talking about. And um, I voiced that out loud, knowing that could all be completely off base, but that's okay because I'm leaving. Um, but that's kind of what I'm thinking is, is some of the direct, you know, how would you actually implement some of what you're saying? And I'd be curious as to your feedback on all that. I think it's point on, but you, you have a reaction, and I can say why. Say it out loud. But I mean, uh -oh. is that what, what, what Scott suggested? Is that something that could be put in line for the Parks Department, for example, uh -huh. and other departments to keep the focus on the child? I mean, do you see that? Well, that's exactly what I was so, thinking. Oh, yeah. Yep. If the city hmm. took. The city as a whole, yeah, right, right, right. I mean, right. city government, but right. then the broader city also. You know, if if we could start reimagining mm -hmm. the city through the eyes of a child and involving children, so we see like they do, because we don't anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just don't. Mm -hmm. Even when our inner child comes forward, right? I mean, we're still we're not seeing like they do, and. Um, I was reminded Tuesday night's council meeting, uh, we had several um, kids, fourth graders, I think, from Mendota School come, mm -hmm. and they were talking about, they had done this, they, they decided that the special project they wanted to work on was homelessness. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, to, were you there? I, I'm looking back. No, I mean, it. it you should watch it. It's at the beginning of the council meeting, of course, because we weren't going to keep them, you know, through that whole meeting. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it was 
really powerful. And then they made this little song up at the end, and they sang to us and stuff. But everyone was like out of their seats. I'm not, I mean, it was very powerful through their eyes what they had gotten from um, this lesson. Well, you know, this whole notion of having children be their own advocates mm-hmm. has been around for since Dewey. Yes, mm-hmm. it has. Since John Dewey. And so we as Madison folk were just now learning about how to involve children in their own advocacy. And one of the ideas, what I wanted to bring up was um, that it, during the 80s and 90s in the, in the Madison School District, we had some autonomy principals did, and, and the school district personnel would, and officials would let us have some autonomy in our schools. Mm-hmm. And back then, um, as I recall, um, we had open education schools, and there was an open education um, program at Lincoln Elementary at the time, and open education is based on John Dewey concepts. Um, we also had cognitively guided instruction in math, CGI and math which also involves student voices. Those kinds of student advocacy programs are gone. So we have superintendents, we hire superintendents who don't, you know, they're supposed to be educators too, don't believe in students. Mm -hmm. Because if they did, they would not let those programs go by the wayside. And so, you know, who do we hire? I mean, it's all this multiple (laughs) tiers of how you get at providing, you know, for kids and giving uh, students their voices. Why aren't we hiring superintendents who think, you know, and who reimagine? Um, It's always why. Why do we go this direction when we need to be going in this direction? I I just don't, this dissonance, you know, between the bureaucracy and... and, Your drawers. Yeah, silos. Yeah, and the (laughs) control, the authority, the power over people that that seems to be there. Why is there the, and here we are trying to talk about what students need and then you've got these other folks. I mean, when is this going to ever come together? Mm-hmm. That's when I just can't, I just can't get over <laughs> that idea. I think it would heighten community awareness uh, a lot uh, to even to be lobbying for, working toward having at least one or two council members championing uh, some of the proposals you just made, Scott. Um, Just the conversation about it would be so powerful. Um, And then for how you make it work behind the scenes um, so that they're not talking to strangers, so that it's not a huge funded research project. You're working with, you know, groups who are already there and people who are already talking to children. You know, some of the examples I've brought, you know, and I'm would be very happy to talk with you about some of those logistics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, too, when you mentioned homelessness, I've been involved, because I know the architect of it, with the oh, Occupy Medicine 2 uh, tiny houses movement on the, the Near East Side. And uh, there were just two more uh, houses, 99 square feet in dimension, delivered uh, the week before I got here, uh, made by students at one of the Madison High Schools. So they are making housing for homeless individuals for that project. Uh, and, and we know kids given a, a vision and given a, a few resources and uh, some guidance, and they want guidance. They want adults. They want feedback. You know, it's like they just want to, you know, do everything, you know, independently. Um, 
but given the space and the encouragement, uh, you know, we know that children rise to the challenge. Yeah. Mimi, come to a mic so we can. the pleasure of being in Lincoln School when Muriel was the fantastic leader of that school quite a, a while ago. But, I mean, that, now, you, now you're even, bet, you know, in bigger positions. But um, I just wanted to say one thing that I beg of you, do not mandate as part of assessments. Mm -hmm. Because for young children, they are over-assessed already. So if you want to, I think, involve children's voices in so many different ways, which were really great ideas that you had, mm -hmm. please don't put them in assessments, though. No, I'm, I'm thinking of assessment as in having conversations with children. I'm not thinking of giving them any kind of bubble sheets or anything. Yeah, man mandating. We need to have parents' voices in the city, families' voices, and children's voices brought to the table much more, mm -hmm. but not as part of an addition, additional mandate that teachers have to do mm -hmm. or that children must do and figure out how to take more time out of the programming or the lives of children and the parents. But I still do not see families' voices mm -hmm. sufficiently from a variety of communities. Mm -hmm really brought, and I, I am in the Madison-Dane County area, and I've been working on that for quite a long time, too, but the testing that is going on, even with young children, that I will claim publicly is not reliable and is not valid, should not be added to in terms of um, other mandates, and that's why I wanted to come to the table because I feel very strongly about that. Okay. Um, but uh, all the other recommendations that you were making were fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Is it my opinion? Sorry. Sorry. Thank you. That's fine. <laughs> I, and I really like the multi-sector piece. That is something that just has grabbed my attention since the first time I, you know, spent some time at University of Melbourne and went to those meetings and saw that getting, I mean, it sounds small, but getting somebody in public works or transportation or whoever controls the length of a stoplight, you know, and say because children, you know, are struggling with this and hearing their stories about it, you know, then get that thing changed. I mean, that is no small accomplishment. Um, and I think you weren't saying to add more testing regimes to children. But I, and I hear you too, Mimi, about not wanting to add more burden on centers and providers. Uh, but what I was thinking more would be to, you know, have some kind of representative, design something as a start where you have some representative um, uh, input from children. So to be very strategic about it, not to add to the burden to centers, but to have a mechanism or a couple of mechanisms for, for formally collecting their opinions, for using, you know, things that are described in these articles and elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> There's somebody. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to Does this work? No. No. That seems to be the seed for yeah, okay. That's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm all for having people's voices and um, 
the voices that we talked about from the community, from families, from parents, from providers, and obviously especially from children. And I just want to talk a little bit about the mechanism that you just mentioned, because for many years um, the city and programs like Wisconsin Early Childhood Association and many of our other advocacy agencies have done surveys, and they've invited people to come to the table, and sometimes you can get a stipend if you're the person that comes to the table. I did it many times. But then there's, like, the surveys, the questions are supposed to be open-ended, but they're not. They're framed by the survey writer. And that's good, and it serves a purpose, but it doesn't necessarily bring the full voice, I don't think, to the table. And also, um, I think that some providers and some parents will come to the table and it's it can be very difficult it's either a personality type or sometimes it's someone with access and that's good too and it serves a purpose but somehow I think that it's really important to get a broader voice and I know that we can't all do like interview studies and things like that it was you know a pleasure that I was able to do that through my own work but what it brought out was completely different, and many people said, well, they ask us and they ask us and they ask us, and nothing changes, or it, it doesn't change enough. Or So there's that piece. So think about how people are getting to the table. It's almost like we need a constituent to go out and door-to-door and ask people for mini-interviews or some mechanism like that to get people more open-ended in their discussion, same way that we're doing with the children, because they'll tell us things that never occurred to us. Or, um, and so there's that piece. And then the piece, I forget what brought me to this question. Oh, I think it was how do we balance quality and um, access. Really. And access. And I think that that, again, brings us back to the funding question and the values question because um, how, where we're placing our values. And I think many, many times we have opted for the funding because we've had none, and then we've had to compromise our full values. And so somehow if we can bring, um, you know, again, of course, the pie in the sky is all that funding, access to the community, and all of those things. But I think that's a huge issue. And we know that we either don't always get what we want or we have to negotiate. And so sometimes when I critique, I realize that, but I don't always say it. I know that people are really doing the best that they can and then that we have those values and we just haven't figured out how to bring them forward. I wanted to say a quick comment oh, about okay. I just wanted to add that another piece to getting um, voices, whether they're parent voices or the children's voices, is you have to look at the research around uh, or that's on um, interviewing and who mm -hmm. does the interview. Mm -hmm. um, that's, right. that's right. So we're not always going to get the information that we want if you have uh, interviewers who are white, for example, interviewing folks who are African American. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at that piece. And I know as principal, um, kids would come in, they wanted to come and see me, and they wanted to come and see me and be with me because I was black, yeah. African American, and identified, and I, you know, had a, had a different sense, you know, of, of what listening was than had they gone to, you know, a white principal. So, I mean, you have, so when you start talking about what you're going to do, mm -hmm. you really have to examine, again, through a racial lens. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I want to piggyback on that because that is actually interesting. Um, in talking on a practical level about where we're at in terms of um, accreditation and the revision of the standards that we just um, underwent to incorporate the changes or the development in best practice over the last however many, 15 years, 20 years since we revised them last, um, there are some positive signs and when when Scott was asking well do we speak to children when we do accreditation well I stuttered a bit when I answered because directly no but it, it's similar to um, what Muriel was saying part of it depends on not just a racial lens because that's really important but also a developmental lens and anyone who works with young children and and there's also gender differences knows that if you really want information you don't necessarily ask a direct question and expect to get it expect to get it at the same time that you ask it and so when we don't directly interview children, but we don't directly interview teachers either, we use the lens of observation. And when we're gathering information about children, what they think, how they're feeling, how they're doing, what they like, what they don't like, we also, remembering the lens of they're not adults, so they show us in so many ways their feedback. They give us their feedback. And so when we're observing in classrooms, the lens we actually use is through the children's eyes. We see how the program works for all the children, including those that may be uh, marginalized in the classroom, um, those that um, may be the troublemakers, those that may be overlooked and ignored, um, you know, those that are popular among their peers, those that aren't. Um, and we may follow children um, through an entire observation to see how is it working for them. And I actually do sneak questions in about, well, you know, when they say, what are you doing here? And I say, well, I'm kind of seeing how the teachers are doing because I work with them and I give them feedback. Um, and I tell them what they see, that they're doing really well, and I give them suggestions. So how do you think your teachers are doing? And, you know, it's interesting the answers I get. Um, and so there are ways to directly question, but the people who are doing it have to know who they're talking to. So, um, so in terms of race, in terms of age, in terms of economic level, they have to have that frame of reference. And unfortunately, we're going in two different directions because as our quality practices are telling us, we, we need um, best practice tells us that we can do collaborative education and should be. We should be observing children. We should be observing them to learn their strengths and interests, interests sorry, and then plan based on what we observe. And we shouldn't be focusing as much on asking questions as listening. And, you know, the most important questions are those where we actually want to know what children are thinking about the answer. What are they curious about? What did they figure out? We can learn that in some cases by asking open-ended questions, but more often by making statements and just closing our mouths and observing. And so the more that we learn about the data gathering that works with children, um, the better. But unfortunately, the same achievement gap and, and emphasis on data-based planning, what the test results say, what the rubrics say, filling children up as vessels, the more that the best practice and observation-based assessment and observation-based planning, the authentic planning and assessment, the more that we know about that and want to move in that direction and using the vehicle of play, 
um, for those things. It's competing directly with the notion of we use the data to determine what we plan tomorrow, and we test up the gazingi, and that means that the teachers and the providers don't even have the time to interact with the children because they're too busy completing the assessments that they don't even have time to analyze and implement. And so when those things are coming head-to-head, and you teach two-year-olds, you teach three-year-olds, and you're trying to get them ready, forget kindergarten, we're trying to get them ready for, for 3K in some municipalities like Milwaukee, and for, we're getting them ready for 4K, and then 4K has to get them ready for kindergarten. Why not we figure out where they're at and, and where we can help them stretch? So we do need to focus on that, um, and we do need to recognize and label those two dichotomies. The final bit about um, the white teachers yelling at the kids of color, too, is we can't ignore this discussion without discussing capacity. And, and this committee has talked many times about the reality of who's teaching the children and in our community with the low rate of unemployment and the inability for people to support a family on, on lower incomes. Those are, those are exactly some of the providers that teach the children are the low-income folks who are having a hard time supporting their own families, and they're the ones that are being, being hired in some cases in child care programs. And we don't have strong, um, we have fewer, fewer options than we used to for teachers to, um, in early childhood to receive um, higher levels of education um, as well. So that part of it about supporting capacity, we have to have more providers and teachers who, um, who are of color, who, are, who have language diversity, and um, that means we also focus on where, where they are and how to, um, how, to, how to both attract them and keep them in the field and make that um, a livable career. Um, so anyway. I like Diane's um, hmm? comment about common sense because you talk about needing more educators. We need educators with, with common sense Absolutely. because not all educators use, you know, the, um, are open-minded. And, you know, I just wanted to add that piece. I think one thing, we close out this session, this is a progressive moment. We've had this discussion We've looked at international ideals and pages and pages that were written by scholarly people, important people, and ratified by nations. And then we've asked the question, why didn't we do it? And we have a good answer, or an answer anyway. And then we have what, what can glean from those writings that would be practical in our community. So that's the meeting we had. And we have no blame. There is no perfect system. I'll tell you, uh, even when our colleague Dave Eady went to France years and years ago, and every child in France had an opportunity to go to high-quality preschool, and they were putting millions of dollars into beautiful buildings, and the people from America were visiting, said, why do you do this? And the Frenchman said, well, it's for the children, the simple answer. So I think that is our lens. That's what we have to say. What does it do for kids? And there's probably no perfect document we could write or no perfect municipal action or departmental action. 
but simply being people, and the people in our field are the ones who do it every day. Yeah. They're our experts. Right. We can listen to them. Say, how do, you, how do you do that? How do, what did you learn today from the kids? And if they had no learning from the kids, then maybe that's a message, too, that we need to work on. I, I don't want to at all stifle the conversation, but I also want to be respectful of people's time. So by all means, people should, should stay and, and continue the conversations. But I know also several people had to have to run. And so... Appreciate your time, Beth. Absolutely, it's been very. Thank you, Beth, for preparing so well and having the materials <laughs> because it's something you'll just reflect on more later. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is such an organic. Person. Well, thank you. I have a for everybody. Time. What we are we adjourned? We're, already in, we're yes. not in, in the meeting, yes. so we're adjourned. Thank you for coming back. Stop. Yeah.